Good morning. Again, I guess. Um, today we are covering Boaz. Um, help us indeed, because we we actually we're at the, we're at the fifteenth week, and we've only made it to Boaz. Uh, by this rate, it will be a few years until we make it to Malachi. Um, but actually, I jest. We're going to be making a real beeline right to David from here, and then after David, probably cover Solomon. We might get to him, and then that's going to be it. So um, hopefully you've been enjoying this series in which we've been learning how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And today in this chapter, we learn about a concept that we haven't really talked about much. Um, because we didn't spend much time in Leviticus, we passed over this idea of the kinsman redeemer. And that's really what this message is about, and we're going we're gonna to look at what that means. But as we've been going through this series, I hope that, that you see we've been developing a biblical worldview. And the reason I say biblical worldview instead of a Christian worldview is because so much of what passes for a Christian wor- worldview is so bib- biblically ignorant. And when we sing songs, and what I mean by that is when we sing songs about Jesus being our Redeemer, you know, Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and Friend, those are great songs. But what it means for Jesus to be our Redeemer is that there is a specific picture, there's a specific role that Jesus fulfills that no one else was able to fulfill. And so this morning, as we look at Boaz, he is a picture forward to Jesus being the one who redeems us from our fallen and deadly and barren state. So here today, this morning, we're going to look at a few different things. We've touched on this idea of a prophetic narrative, that is, the way that God works through circumstances to prophesy of what's coming forward. We're going to re-emphasize that this morning. Um, We've also seen this idea, I just talked about it, we're going to look at it a little more strongly, we're going to see this idea of the kinsman redeemer and how that was a biblical role in, in Hebrew society and in the, in the law that God had established for a specific purpose. We're also going to look at this idea of a major theme of the Old Testament being that the Gentiles are, are coming into the kingdom. Um, it's not just that the New Testament is the first time that Gentiles show up in fact, there's a lot of there's a lot of examples. This is the most concrete, in my opinion. Um, but we're going to see there are just as many, and they are just as cl- uh, just as clear. That is, we're going to look at how Naomi is a picture of Israel, and um, this is where the the message is going to take on a more poetic reading. But I, I, by now, I think we have developed our ears to read the Bible in a poetic way enough that this won't seem. Um, too strange or too difficult, nor am I going to have to um, prove it, if if that makes any sense. Um, there's this there's woman who I uh, accidentally sometimes call Oprah, and she she shows up here. Her name's Orpha or Orpa. I I like Orpha, which is probably what I'm going to stick to today. Um, Orpa or 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 Orpha. It's it's a little complicated. Um, it's not English. We're going to look at how Ruth is a picture of the church and um, why I why I think that she's a picture of the church. It's not just me, but you can pick up any commentary that you that's written by a Protestant and, um, or maybe even Catholic. I, I've never read any Catholic commentaries, but I'm sure some of them think that Ruth is a picture of the church. Um, 
we're going to look at this this guy who's referred to as the close relative and and how he's a picture of man and religion's efforts at attempting to resolve the issue between God and his people. And then finally, we're going to look at Boaz, and not only Boaz, but also Boaz's son that he has as being pictures forward or pointers towards who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So again, there's this concept of the prophetic narrative, and we've, we've touched on this before with, um, with Joshua and with Abraham and, and even with, with the sending of Abraham's servant to go find a, a bride for his son, that, that God works in historical events, that these events are accurate and true. There really was a person called Boaz. There really was a person called Naomi. There really was a famine in the land of Moab. And God has worked through these historical events, these true accurate descriptions or, and stories and narratives. And he, he has worked through them in such a way that they those symbols uh, prophesy of an event that's going to come forward, or going to take place uh, forward in history. And so it's not the fact that you take a poetic reading and you somehow take a non-true story and get a true poetic prophetic picture. If you're going to come up with something that's prophetic, it has to have a base that's truth. Um, you cannot prophesy uh, even in the New Testament, on just what you think, you have to prophesy and measure it against Scripture. And so, as we read this story, we're looking for pictures of Christ and and what He's doing in terms of redemptive history, and and we we have to know that these are true, accurate events. Um, it's not just that Adam and Eve were kind of like a picture of the first man and woman who were ape-like you know, extensions, and then they were human enough to be called human. No, Adam and Eve were historical true people. Um, every story in the Old Covenant, scriptures as well as the New Covenant, actually happened the way it says it happened, and any difficulties in us understanding how it happened are, are a lack of our ability to read the Bible biblically. I remember a time where the, um, the Gospels have a... Uh, one kind of, you know, seemingly hard to understand um, uh, event. And this event is where Judas buys this plot of, of land and he, he goes and hangs himself <clears throat> after uh, he, he had handed over Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Judas is being, you know, tormented by the, the evil one and, and Judas finally kills himself. In one of the Gospels, it says that Judas bought the field and he went there and hung himself. In the other Gospel, it says that he, uh, the, the Pharisees had the field. And uh, a young brother had been asking me about this, and I, this was probably the best question I've ever been asked. And I totally did not come up with the answer. The Holy Spirit reminded me of a time in Proverbs where it's, I, I forget what chapter, um, if you know the reference, you can shout it out. But um, in Proverbs, it talks about those who make an agreement to lie in, in wait for someone's blood, as in they've set a trap for someone. And then it goes on to say, we shall have one purse. And so a seemingly uh, conflicting idea that Judas bought the field or that the Pharisees bought the field was explained by coming to a more biblical idea that Judas and the Pharisees bought the field. They both, because they had agreed to work in iniquity and wait for Jesus to die, uh, understanding a biblical story based on biblical language, uh, it was able to solve something that to us Greeks or English thinkers we would have seen as, as a 
as, you know, an inconsistency with the Bible that would then unravel it and all of our faith would be destroyed. And so it's important for us to begin to read the Bible ever so increasingly more biblically uh, throughout our Christian walk. It's important to make sure that you're understanding the cultural uh, symbols, the, the, the ways in which the Bible uh, speaks about uh, the significance of certain events. And, and that's what we're doing this morning with this idea of the kinsman redeemer. So in God's law, he knew that uh, his society, his special people that he was forming, he knew there would be problems. Sin is is in the midst of this people. The people are extremely sinful. Um, that's no surprise to God. And so he makes certain provisions to stem the effects of sin or to to hold at bay the effects of sin um, from wiping out entire uh, clans and gen- and generations. Um, we didn't cover it because we had skipped over most of Judges, but there's actually uh, a place in Judges where uh, the Benjaminites, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, they're completely, you know, wiped out, basically. And already, up to this point, there are, there are massive um, sweeping events that take place, and they're going to cut off people's names from uh, the people of God. And so God has... Uh, In his law, he has instituted a way in which that cannot happen. He's made a provision for people to to have their name persist throughout uh, the people of God. And so in Leviticus 25, 25, we see um, this whole chapter, this whole section, really, Leviticus 25, the middle portion of that chapter, deals with this concept of redeeming things that are lost. And so we read about this kinsman redeemer here. It says in Verse 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So what's happened in this story? Why does this apply? Naomi has lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, and she is coming back to the land of Israel. And when we pick it up in chapter 4, which we'll get get to in, in a few moments, when we pick it up in chapter four, Naomi is selling this piece of land. And so her nearest uh, relative, you know, whether it's an uncle or a cousin or a brother or a brother-in-law, somebody who is related to her closely um, in terms of generational distance is required by the law, if he has the means, to come and purchase this land. Why is that? Well, it's an honor thing. Um, It's never honorable to, you know, become so poor that you have to sell your house and sell all of your stuff. That's a very, that's a very um, personally uh, hard to deal with time. Uh, but not only that, it's also, it also has to do with property rights. And this whole chapter being about the, the year of Jubilee, it's important that the land, that they keep track of who has the land. And that idea that um, if if this person sells the land at certain times, they can't ever get it back through the year of, of Jubilee. At other times, they can. And we're not going to go into all of the ways in which um, that happens. But suffice it to say, this is a removal of the blessing of the Lord on this clan or on this family. And so if, if someone outside of their family uh, purchases that land, They've lost territory, and, and, and God wants all of his people in the midst of his uh, uh, church or in the midst of Israel, if you will, to prosper and to excel. So 
we know that um, in in our Western mindset of of spirituality, you have your relationship with Jesus. I've got my relationship with Jesus. You do devotionals. I'm not into devotionals. I just pray. Um, no. Morality in the Bible is not individual. It is. It has societal implications, and it has effects. And, and what you do with your morality, with your spirituality, affects those around you. And it's not just that you can be a Christian by yourself. If your Christianity never works itself out and expresses itself in doing good deeds for others, then I would, I would, call, I would call you to question the depth of your Christianity. In Leviticus 25, 47 through 48, we see this societal impact that, um, that takes place. Remember, this is the law. This is God's law to his people. And th- this is what the people of God are required to do if they are to be a moral or right, uh, a, a very moral or righteous people. In Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 48, we read, Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, so this is is an alien in the land and he's got some money, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may may redeem him. So what's happening here? There's an alien... Um, and I'm not talking about a UFO. I'm talking about someone who's foreign to the country, um, an immigrant, a sojourner, whatever you want to call it. He's living in Israel, and he's become wealthy. But this other guy, this Israelite, he has become poor. And with respect to the distance between this sojourner or alien or immigrant and the Israelite, the Israelite is so poor that he is selling himself as an indentured servant to this foreigner. And here in the law, it says that this, this Israelite, he has a right to be redeemed by one of his brothers. This, of course, is a picture of how we, Paul says, anyone who sins uh, presents himself as a slave to sin. And this speaks of the fact that Jesus, this whole message is about really, that Jesus is our brother who is redeeming us. So with this idea of the kinsman redeemer, with this concept now built for us, we're, we're going to be able to understand what today is all about. So not only is there this idea of the kinsman redeemer, but also a major biblical theme is that the Gentiles are have always been, since the beginning of the Garden of Eden, have always been uh, intended to come into the kingdom. That Little times uh, throughout the scriptures, we see that the Gentiles, those who God didn't choose to work with in a special way, even though he didn't choose them for uh, to be his special people, he did choose them to come into his special people uh, through the fullness of, of redemption that Jesus Christ brings in his life, death, and burial, and resurrection. And we see this ever-increasing theme grow in the Old Testament. In Exodus 20, or sorry, Exodus 12, verse 38, it says that a mixed multitude went up from Egypt with the Israelites. And what is this mixed multitude? Well, it was a group of people who had probably 
lived close to the Hebrews or maybe had intermarried or, or were business partners, some sort of uh, way that they understood what was going on with this special people. And why did they go up? They're these mixed multitude. They're they're Egyptians or they're people. You know, Egypt at the time was an empire, so it might have been that they were people from surrounding countries or surrounding tribes. They maybe weren't just Egyptian Egyptians, but there's this mixed multitude that aren't Hebrew, and they go up with the people of God. Why did they go up? They had seen God making a demonstration that the Hebrews were His special people. They were going to become the people of Israel. And um, this special people, uh, God was favoring and blessing. They had seen every judgment that God had made against the empire of Egypt, and he, they, they understood that if they stayed around in Egypt, they were choosing to identify with someone God was angry with. And by choosing to stay in Egypt, they were going to continue to be involved with a picture of those things that God hates. And so they choose to go up with Israel. This is a this is a picture of those who see the the church, who they see the people of God, and they leave their people and go with the people of God. This idea of someone who sees the blessing of God on a certain people is further expanded in Joshua chapter two. In Joshua chapter two, we didn't cover uh, all of that chapter. We covered the first part of it um, uh, two weeks ago. Rahab, this this woman, is living in the wall of of Jericho, and um, she she is uh, she hears that these spies have come into to the land. They've come into this city, and she uh, she finds out that they're there, and she makes a discernment. She she sees that these people are Hebrews, or they're the people of Israel, and she remembers what happens. Uh, what had happened to to the Egyptians uh, when 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 they ask her what's going on? She says, "I know that the Lord has given you the land." Now, remember, this land is full of many large tribes and people groups who had been living there for for years, you know, generations of of small cities and larger cities that had fortifications and walls. This, this wall that was around Jericho was large enough for a house. So if you, if you imagine this building, this would be about the size of a house. And uh, uh, sorry, Rahab is living in this, she's living in this house. She's living in the wall of Jericho. And so Jericho is a huge city. We're not modernists. We don't believe that they just had huts back then. Th- this was a walled city. And they... Um, they re- she realizes that God is about to destroy the people in the land. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water out of the Red Sea before you when you came out of, of Egypt. And then she makes the declaration. This is She gets converted. She says, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She recognizes that Yahweh is sovereign, and she decides to... Um, divorce herself, so to speak, from the the evil and the wickedness that was happening in the land of Canaan, and instead assist and 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 cause for blessing to come on the people of God. So this idea of Gentiles coming into the kingdom, this is the main uh, Ruth, this story of Ruth coming in into the lineage of Christ. This is the uh, 
kind of pinnacle of that idea. We we haven't looked at Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that's many, many weeks ahead. We probably won't ever get there, at least not in this series, maybe in a future series. Uh, but also um, Naaman um, also is another example of a Gentile who comes to um, to recognize the blessing of God, as well as the Queen of Sheba when she encounters Solomon. There are many, many, many pictures, and there's even more poetic pictures in uh in the Garden of Eden, and and we could go, we could spend an entire few weeks describing the Gentiles in the Old Testament. So let's get into this story. Naomi is a very old woman. She is now barren in in a way. She has given birth, but now she's barren. She uh, ha, her has lost her husband, so she's unable to have children because she is. Um, she has no husband. Um, the The biblical idea of, of barrenness is not just that um, there's something anatomically wrong or, or or physically wrong with the woman's womb, but rather it's also her circumstances. And so Naomi is, is this old woman. She's barren. She can't have any children. She has no husband. And the children that she did have have died. Um, this is, if you remember what happened to Sarah, over and over again, this is this is a common theme in the Old Testament. Uh, barrenness uh, forward to uh, giving birth is probably just as large, if not larger, than any of the other concepts we've talked about as being a major biblical theme. So Israel's growing dependence on attempting to complete the law is also a type of barrenness. And so we see Naomi is a picture of Israel. Her her inability to have children is mirrored in the fact that the law, according to Paul, is unable to produce the fruit of righteousness. The law and practicing the law is barren. You cannot get righteous life. You cannot get the fruit of the Holy Spirit from man's sinful effort to attempt to fulfill the law on his own. While Naomi is a picture of Israel, Orpha is also a picture of the world. Orpha, unlike the mixed multitude of Egypt and Rahab the harlot, uh, recognizing the blessing of God on the people of Israel, Orpha does not recognize the blessing of God on Naomi. Remember, God is sovereign, and before this, he had had predestined to include Naomi and uh, one of her descendants as part of the people of uh, the lineage that would bring forth Christ into this earth. That is a high and mighty calling. And in this, Orpha does not recognize the blessing of God on Naomi. In that, she's a picture of the world. Those who hear the message of the gospel and and attempt to believe, or they think they believe, but they don't obey. Just as we saw last week, this idea of of, uh, uh, Samson and Delilah, that Delilah betrays Samson with a kiss. So Orpha's kiss in in this story betrays Naomi, and and Orpha leaves her when Naomi needs her the most. Remember, Naomi is an old woman. She needs food, and her daughters could have been a source of material blessing in terms of service. And so Orpha betrays Naomi with this kiss and turns away. Orpha being a picture of the world, Ruth is a picture of the church. Ruth perceives the blessing and call of God on Naomi and also Naomi's people. And her love for Naomi's lifestyle, way of life, her the way that she lived righteously before God, and Ruth sees this and loves that 
more than loves the idea of returning to something that is familiar and that is uh, common to her. Remember, Ruth was from the people of Moab, and Naomi had told Ruth, "Go back to the people of Moab. I I don't have uh, I don't have someone who can uh, redeem you." Remember, she says that that weird idea of of Naomi saying, "Even if I had a child now." Would you wait for him to be born? That doesn't make any sense if you don't understand the idea of kinsman redeemer. The the person that that Ruth should have married would have been someone who was related to her brother, uh, which would have been her brother in law or a cousin who was unmarried. You know, uh, something like that. And Ruth, Naomi is basically saying to Ruth, "There is no kinsman redeemer for you. Uh, go find someone else." And Ruth responds with faith. And even though the circumstances look dire, in Ruth 1.16, we read, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you, or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. That's a conversion experience right there, if it didn't happen before. She's saying, I am going to serve your God, and he will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth is a picture of the church and all of those who respond in faith to the message of the gospel, and she responds in faith with her words and with her actions. This idea of the church in in Western society, we think that this building is the church. But it's actually the case that this building is not the church. This is a building. You can just refer to it as the building. Grace Christian Fellowship meets in this building. Grace Christian Fellowship is not 1444 Darst Avenue. The ecclesia is the word for the church in the New Testament. And the ecclesia means those who are called out or a called out assembly. It comes from this idea in the city of Athens that the, um, the Athenians would have um, they would have individual people who would go and they would leave the marketplace, they would leave the square of business, and they would go and have an assembly, and that assembly would vote on things, whether they were going to go to war, whether they were going to appropriate taxes, and that assembly was called the ecclesia, those who are called out from, from among the people to decide on things and to represent the, those people, as well as to... Uh, you know, execute war and to, you know, uh, commence trade and, and, and these different governing functions. And this is what the church is. The church is a group of people who've been called out together. And so how is Ruth a picture of the church? Well, it's very clear. Ruth is called out of the tribe of Moab and into the people of God that is Israel. This is exactly the same thing that happened to Abraham. He was called out of the land of his father, of the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was called to a land that uh, he didn't know where he was going. Um, this is a major, major uh, theme in the, in the scriptures, this idea that, that the message of the gospel comes and is proclaimed to someone. They hear that they can turn and respond to the work of Jesus on the cross on their behalf. They hear that and respond in faith, turn from sin, and follow God, and join his people. So this, there's this guy in this story called the close relative. I don't know if you noticed, but it didn't say the close relative's name. The close relative is a picture of the world and religion's attempt to uh, complete the, 
the law and to bridge this chasm between God and man. But this man, this, this guy, the close relative guy, he doesn't see the opportunity to join in with what God's doing in his people at this time. And he misses his opportunity to be included in the people of God. I think it's significant, very significant, that his name is not recorded. The reason why is because this whole idea of the kinsman redeemer is so that the name of the deceased will be preserved throughout the people of God. There will be a record. God will remember him. God won't blot his name out of the book of life, if you see where this is going. In Ruth 4, 6a, the first part of the verse, it says, The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. This close relative is a picture of of those who uh, see the possible blessing in in responding to the gospel. But um, if you remember the phrase from the parable of the sower and the soil, uh, the desire for other things uh, comes in and chokes out the seed or the message of the gospel. And here, the close relative, uh, it, it not only speaks of those who hear the gospel and don't respond with faith, but also of his inability for the inability of religion to save those who are failing. In Ruth 4, 6, the second part of the verse, part B, he, this close relative tells Boaz, redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Religion is totally unable to redeem you to God. Now we finally get to the point of this message, Boaz. In Ruth 4.1, we see that Boaz went up to the gate. The close relative did not come up to the gate. Naomi did not come up to the gate. Ruth did not come up to the gate. Boaz comes up to the gate. And this speaks of the fact that Christ is the initiator in seeing and fixing the chasm between man and God. This deep and impossible to, to bridge distance that sin has come and placed between God and man. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we see this, this phrase, this, uh, this call for us to do some, something. It says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Boaz here sees the cost of purchasing this land and providing for Ruth and decides to do it anyway because he sees the joy in joining with what God has been doing. In Ruth 4, verses 3 through 4, Then Boaz said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. It's important that you understand that Boaz was related to Ruth. This idea of the kinsman redeemer is biblically significant in that as mankind, we had all sinned. The Adamic race, the humans, we had all fallen from glory. And because of that, someone in, in our likeness had to come and redeem us. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, we read, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross in, in the strength of his deity, and that he lived a righteous life because he was God, that's actually, that's actually heresy. The fact is that Jesus walked as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit, just the same Holy Spirit that you and I have, 
uh, been given through through his gift. That Holy Spirit empowered Jesus. He worked along with the the Word of God, being empowered by the Holy Spirit in humanity, living out righteousness and dying in our place. And so if you believe that Jesus was different or that his work on the cross was somehow um, discounted because he was actually God, uh, that's not true at all. He was man, fully God, fully man, in some way that we don't fully understand, but he made propitiation for our sins and he redeemed uh, his brothers. In Ruth 4, verse 5, we read, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. This speaks of both Israel and the church, those who God had predestined from before the foundation of the world. Both of us, both people groups were sinful. And the work of Christ on the cross has unified us so as there is no longer a division between Israel and the Gentiles. We covered this in the Ephesian series that it says that he uh, put to death the enmity that, that was hostile toward us in his flesh on the cross. And this idea that Boaz has to redeem both Naomi and Ruth speaks of the fact that Israel is no more righteous because they're Israel and the Gentiles are no more righteous because they're the Gentiles. Both are sinful and both need Christ. The Israelites were never uh, declared righteous because they followed the law. They were declared righteous because they heard the prophecies of God concerning one who would be their redeemer. And just as the Gentiles remember and hear the gospel proclaimed and uh, remember the one who has redeemed them. In Ruth 4, verses 7 through 8, we see, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of of land uh, to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Christ, in the same way, took on the sin of man, not paying for any sin of his own on the cross, but rather carried what was given to him. That is, he took the sins of mankind upon himself and has died man's death and redeemed man's debt. In Ruth 4.10, we read, Moreover, this is Boaz saying, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malthan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. If Ruth speaks of the Gentiles, then the deceased speaks of Adam. Christ's redemption that he accomplished on the cross was not just for Israel or or for the Gentiles, but rather he has redeemed and made possible redemption for all of mankind. The entire Adamic race, all of humanity, was in need of redemption. In Ruth 4, 14 through 15, we read, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and he and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. It's not only that Boaz is a picture of Christ, 
but also Boaz's descendant and his line, all of them point forward to Christ. Boaz's descendant of whom the women are prophesying speaks of Christ just as much as Boaz does. In Ruth 4, verse 17, it says, The neighbor women came and gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. In the same way that Ruth did not name her son, so did Mary not name her son. But rather, the name of Jesus was declared to her by the angel Gabriel. And so this is what the prophetic narrative is about. This is about pointing forward to Jesus. This is about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. He is the one who has been made famous in Israel. This prophecy that the that the women, the neighbor women, had come and told Naomi and Ruth about their son, this one they're prophesying over, may he be famous in Israel, may he be a restorer of life and a sustainer, and may he be better than all the others. This is speaking of Christ. He is the only one who is famous in Israel. He is the only one who is a restorer of life that in the last day when he unifies everything in himself, brings judgment on the earth and righteous redemption for his people, that he will literally raise us up from the death. He will be restore the restorer of life. Not only that, he is the only sustainer. And finally, he is our kinsman redeemer. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that we would see and savor Jesus in the Old Testament. We ask you, God, that you would give us biblical eyes and ears, that when we read your word, we would see the beautiful interweaving themes. God, I'm reminded of, of the, uh, the poet, I forget his name, but he, he basically said, I wish that I could see all of the uh, beauty in your word, how it's like the stars, each verse is shining the chapters are, are groups of stars and the constellations and the interweaving patterns. He's asking God in that poem to, to have you open his eyes to the beautiful interweaving themes that speak of your son. God, we ask you that you would glorify Jesus in our hearts as we read your word this week. God, we ask you that we would become a people who are educated in your scriptures, that we would be able to whether it be uh, someone in our Western culture or a Hebrew person or an, you know, an Israelite or someone who's a, a Jewish person, God, we ask you that you would open our eyes, that you would fill us with your spirit and wisdom so that we would be able to demonstrate and give a defense for the fact that Jesus Christ was the only expected person in the history of man, that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning him in the Old Testament. We have not missed our Messiah. We know that he is Jesus. And God, we ask you that you would give us the desire to study for, for not only long periods of time or arduous tasks, but rather that we would study and mine the depths of your scriptures to find treasures and gems. In Jesus' name, amen.